This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Andrew Pedigree is professor of modern history at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where he is the founding director of the St. Andrews Reformation Studies Institute. He is the author of several books, including The Invention of News, The Book in the Renaissance, which was a New York Times notable book in 2010, and Emden and the Dutch Revolt. His most recent work is Brand Luther, How an Unheralded Monk Turned His Small Town into a Center of Publishing, Made Himself the Most Famous Man in Europe, and Started the Protestant Reformation. Professor Pedigree, welcome to Thinking in Public. Professor Pedigree's new book is entitled Brand Luther, and it has the kind of subtitle that uh, we're accustomed to seeing in books by the Puritans and uh, others in centuries past. The subtitle, How an Unheralded Monk Turned His Small Town into a Center of Publishing, Made Himself the Most Famous Man in Europe, and Started the Protestant Reformation. Professor Pedigree, the subtitle does really tell us the story of the book. How did you get onto this as a scholar? Well, I was asked by um, the publisher, Penguin, to write a book for the great uh, Luther celebrations of of, of 2017, when we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. And I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to write a biography. So I thought what I'd do was take the opportunity to unite the two strands, two main strands of my working life, which are respectively working on the Reformation and working on the history of the book. Uh, I started off as a historian of the Reformation. I wrote several uh, books uh, about uh, Protestantism and the development of the Protestant movement. But then in mid-career, I, I took a turn towards working on the history of communication. And it just struck me that this was a fantastic opportunity to unite those two strands um, of my work and talk about Luther as a communicator. Uh, And so that's what I've done with Brown Luther. Uh, Just to be candid, I have these conversations only uh, when there is a book I believe is really uh, worthy of the discussion. And uh, so that having been said, I have to tell you, that I have two entire sections uh, from floor to ceiling of books on Luther in my library. And and this is the single most interesting book on Luther I believe I have ever read. And uh, I I, I must say it was a bit unexpected, because even with the the, the 500th anniversary of, uh, of 1517 coming up on us, it's hard to believe there's something really new to write about Luther. The, the story, mm-hmm. as it's known, can be told in so many different ways, uh, Heiko Obermann to, to Roland Baton and, and beyond. But, uh, but you do merge your two interests in such an incredible way here that it, it made me think we really can't talk about the Reformation after reading this book, Brand Luther, without going back to the point you make. And uh, just looking at it, even providentially, there would have been no Reformation in the sense we know it, and there would have been no Luther in the sense we now know him, had it not been for a cast of characters, a unique moment, and uh, and a part of that was the technology of printing. And uh, and in particular, uh, as you make the point at the end of the book, you, you really can't explain Luther without the book, but you also, in many ways, in Germany, can't explain the book without Luther. Yes, I think that's right. I, I think that there has always been an understanding, not least promoted by Luther himself, that the technology of printing was critical to the Reformation's success. 
I think you get an idea of what the Reformation might have been like without printing. If you look back a hundred years to Jan Hus and the Hussites, uh, because of course that was a successful revolt which occurred a hundred years before print, uh, but it was localized. It remained very much um, a Czech, a Bohemian affair, because there was no way of spreading the word in this in this wildfire way. So printing made a fundamental difference. But Luther also, to some extent, rescued print. Because one of the things that really became clear to me on an earlier project was that print was a technology which really wasn't bound to succeed. It wasn't inevitable that print would establish itself as the predominant medium of communication. There are plenty of books before the invention of printing, that is, handwritten manuscript books, and they served their use as well. It was a more restrictive um, uh, audience, books are more expensive, but nevertheless, the manuscript market worked well. And when printing first came along, once the first excitement about technology had receded, there was quite a lot of pushback. Uh, in many ways, people felt these printed books were inferior to their familiar manuscripts. So it re uh, the whole industry went into something of a nosedive. There was a, a retrenchment, a lot of bankruptcy among printers. People couldn't work out how to make money from print. And if this sounds familiar to some of your listeners from the sort of experience of trying to monetize digital technologies in our own age, I, I, I think that does have resonance. It, people come up with the technology first, they think it's fabulous, and then they think, hold on, how can we make money from it? Well, you make the point and that what, Gutenberg himself uh, went bankrupt after printing his famous Bible. It, it was not right. an immediate success. That's right. I mean, the Bible was a sensation. It sold out before it had been printed. It was extremely expensive. And yet he was bankrupted by the expense of all the experimentation. And that was not an unusual experience. In most places where printing had been started in the 15th century, it very quickly ceased again. And print had to consolidate. And so it became clear that there had to be a new audience for print, that you couldn't fuel this enormous growth in production unless you had new readers who had not been readers in the manuscript world. And that's precisely what Luther did. He found a way to engage new readers, new readers who were not necessarily comfortable as Latin readers, who had to be addressed in their own language, in his case German. And he found a way of making money for printers. And that was by writing short, pamphlet-length books, which could be produced in a couple of days or three days, put out onto the marketplace, and sold out so that the printers got an immediate return. And so that proved to be the most fantastic mechanism, not only for spreading the market through um, a sequence of reprints that worked from uh, Wittenberg outwards to Leipzig to Augsburg to Nuremberg to Strasbourg, but also giving print a second chance in places where the early experimentation had flickered and died. I'll tell you what my fear was when I picked up your book. Just, uh, again, to be very honest, my fear was that the, the title Brand Luther 
uh, w- was going to be a, a hint of a reductionistic understanding of Luther. The theologian in me uh, was very concerned that this meant that this was, uh, well, as Eric Erickson tried to offer a psychoanalytic reduction of Luther, and economists and others have, have reduced Luther, there have been political arguments. You, to your credit, take Luther very seriously as a man, as a theologian, as a pastor, and uh, as well as a major figure in defining the emergence of Germany and, and uh, the, the technology of the book and the economy of, of, of Saxony. So I, I just want to state a word of appreciation up front. I, I, at virtually every turn, I, w- I was just very pleased at how you, uh, how, how you, I think, very carefully presented Luther uh, theologically as well as, uh, well, economically and politically. I think he's the most extraordinary man, and I think if historians ever needed uh, proof that individuals matter and individuals do have the capacity to change the course of history, <clears throat> then they only really need to look at Martin Luther. Uh, this, this was a man who, until middle age, had shown no signs that he would uh, seek or grasp celebrity. He was a person who, into his 30s, had published nothing. Uh, and yet, somehow... Um, from nowhere, he found a voice that was quite unique. He he learned to write theologically in a different way, to address a different audience, an audience that many, many of his fellow theologians thought should not be engaged in these discussions. But he also wrote serious Latin works for his fellow clerics, because his movement would not have succeeded had he been a one-man band, had he been a prophet, crying in the wilderness. He needed to persuade other members of the clergy that his theological insights were profound enough and important enough to risk dividing the church. And it was only because people of that sort read his, his, his books, often in Latin, and then preached in their own churches that Luther's m- movement could move out of Wittenberg. So yes, I take him very seriously as a theologian, and I tried to also give some sense of what it was like to meet this man, because I, I'm absolutely sure that in, 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 in this era where face-to-face contact mattered so much, those three early journeys he made early in his career to Heidelberg, then to Augsburg, then to Worms for the confrontation with Charles V, these were absolutely crucial in showing him to the German nation but also one-to-one conversations with people who were curious but not yet converted. And I think that the the magnetism of Luther's personality plays a large part in why people took on aspects they didn't find particularly palatable. People were deeply worried when this um, ecclesiastical figure started calling the Pope Antichrist. I mean, that was way beyond their expectations when they first read and approved his criticism of indulgences. But I think he had a sort of personal magnetism which somehow carried people over their natural borders and boundaries. You know, you mentioned several things in, in your book that I'm sure in one sense I knew before, I must have, but but I really hadn't thought of in this way. One of the things you point out is that Luther and his prince basically— uh, did not speak to one another, but may have mm-hmm. actually come face-to-face with one another only at the Diet of Worms. Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible 
that um, Luther preached in the castle church in Wittenberg in the presence of Frederick the Wise, um, that would seem plausible. But there's no record of them ever having spoken one-on-one. And this strange voodoo hold (laughs) that he has over Frederick the Wise is one of the most fortuitous aspects of the Reformation. Because had Frederick the Wise agreed to hand him over to the clerical authorities for him to be spirited off to Rome, I mean, that would have been the, the end of the Reformation before it had begun. We wouldn't know who Martin Luther was. He wouldn't even really merit a footnote in history. But it was the it was the decision of this strange, stubborn, deeply pious Catholic man with one of the largest collections of relics in Europe to stand by his local professor and not to give him up that really made the Reformation possible. I mean, there is a lot of good fortune in Luther's story, without which it wouldn't have been a story at all. Well, just to state the matter in a way that that I think many people don't fully understand, this was a matter of life and death daily for Luther throughout at least most of his lifetime, at least once once he started what we called the Reformation and the course was set. Uh, Just given the political fortunes, uh, I mean, and including the fact that that Wittenberg itself uh, eventually was reabsorbed back into the Holy Roman Empire— uh, it, it was, a, uh, I would just say, it, it was a moment in history in which certain things had to happen. Otherwise, as you say, we would not be talking about Martin Luther today. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, it was only uh, a year after Luther's death that Charles V entered the, the city victorious. Um, he was able to visit Luther's grave, but of course he couldn't lay hands on him uh, personally. Um, So, yes, I mean, Luther did live um, the first, at least the first 10 years after his um, uh, protest against indulgences in the state of imminent expectation uh, of death. Um, He really did think, and of course, this is the great revelation of of Heiko Obermann's uh, book, which you mentioned earlier, that he he really did think he was living through the last days um, and that he could only understand the perilous position in which he'd put himself as um, an actor in the in the end of the world. And I think that gave him uh, the sort of uh, folly of heedlessness to be able to cope with the yes. extraordinary pressures of the situation in which he'd put himself. I had uh, I learned many things from Heiko Obermann, very very indebted to him. But part of it came from a conversation I had with him, uh, I guess near thirty years ago, in which uh, he was with several young uh, historical theologians. I was amongst them, and he grew frustrated with us. And uh, he he was talking about Luther and his Anfechtungen in particular, and he grew frustrated with our questions. And he said, "Young men, you will never understand Luther until you understand." That he went to bed every night believing that he might wait to face either God or the devil. History and biography are necessarily reductionistic. There is no way you can reduce a human being to a book, whether it's one volume or many volumes. A selectivity is at work, and that selectivity has to do with what questions are asked about an individual in history. 
And in that sense, I think what Andrew Pedigree has done in this book is especially important because of the questions he asks. He asks questions that, for the most part, I've not seen asked before of Luther. How was it that Luther, who had not written anything, within four years became the most published man in Germany? How is it that an Augustinian monk who had had no previous celebrity, within a matter of just a few years, became the most famous man in Europe? How do you explain Luther and the book? Or for that matter, how do you explain the book and Luther? All that is what makes Brand Luther such interesting reading. That's a totally different, uh, a, a different period of time in this, uh, this medieval world with the modern world yet coming into view. And, uh, and Luther, in that sense, when you refer to him as Brand Luther, was, uh, was also a religious uh, a church leader of an entirely different type. And, and one of the most important points you make is how he developed an entire style of writing. Let me quote your book back to you. You say this, It's a story that sees Luther blossoming almost overnight as a writer of extraordinary power and fluency, a natural stylist in a genre that had not at that point particularly valued those skills. Let me just insert there. uh, And by that, so our listeners know, you mean theology. Uh, in (laughs) In the process, Luther created what was essentially a new form of theological writing. And then you use these words, lucid, accessible, and above all, short. Mm hmm Mm hmm Well, brevity was not a skill which was much uh, valued in theological debate um, before Luther came along. Uh, The medieval tradition was of uh, pulverizing your opponent into submission by marshalling examples and uh, arguments which lasted uh, over and over through repetition and reiteration and uh, multiple um, citations, and of course that carried over into the sermon um, tradition of, uh, of, of of the time. Sermons would often last two or three uh, hours. They'd be theatrical events. They and they were endurance tests. They were meant to be. It was, in a sense, going to hear a great great preacher was as an aspect of pilgrimage you expected to be moved but you expected to be exhausted by by the effort so when luther writes a a book called a a sermon on indulgence and grace which is 1500 words long and fits perfectly into an eight-page pamphlet there's a certain irony there in the use of the word sermon because it was like no sermon had ever been before Someone asked me recently how how Luther captured this this new tone, this new style, and I said I think the years he'd spent as the parish preacher in the years before 1517 were absolutely crucial here. He came to Wittenberg as a professor, as a member of this young university, lecturing to students, uh, and I think. That was important to him because he had a very fine mind. But he was also responsible for the sermons in in the parish church. And his intense identification with his Wittenberg congregation is something that carries him through his entire life. And I think it's crucial to understanding how he could, when he decides, first of all, to write in German, which is in itself a radical step, he could find this voice that 
immediately captured the attention of a wider public. You make the point that he could write in lucid and elegant Latin for the, his uh, fellow academic theologians and did so and how important that was. But uh, toward the end of your book, and by the way, with every chapter, I kept thinking it can't get better than this. But uh, in, in many ways, my favorite chapter is uh, your last chapter entitled Legacy. And, uh, and I, I want to read back a paragraph to you because it's, it makes the point you just made. You wrote, Luther was a German figure and a German writer. His pleasures, food, music, family, beer were not especially cerebral. And this was conveyed in an engaging style honed over many years of ministry and preaching to his Wittenberg congregation. Luther was a thoroughly educated man, but wore this lightly. His sermons were littered with homely examples and improving tales. Then you continue to say all this was integrated into a style of theological writing that Luther had essentially invented. I, I still think that's astounding. Here you have this singular man who, uh, who dared to write over the heads of the academics to the people of Germany, and, and not only that, to the German Christians in such a way that he created a church. In the chapter before this, you, you lay out so well how it really is evident in the fact that you could walk into a German church uh, of the Reformation a century after Luther, and, uh, and you could tell this was a Reformed church by the preaching, by the singing, and, and by the way the people uh, had owned this faith for their own. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, uh, the, his musical sensitivity was very important to that. He was a decent musician, and he liked playing for, for pleasure, uh, and his grasp that the hymn tradition could be one way not only of engaging the congregation, which it surely was, but also as a teaching tool. And, you know, I think any of us who've been been parents recognize how important repetition is to the learning process and how valuable song can be in that. And Protestant churches adopted this insight to the extent that they very often taught catechism and new hymns, or in the Calvinist case, psalms, to the children first, so that the children could then teach it to the grown-ups, because, of course, you know, children's minds sort of just um, sop this up so so easily. The other thing about his German writing that's that's, um, worth saying is it put put his colleagues who'd stayed behind in the Catholic tradition in a terrible bind because on the one hand it was very dangerous to to abandon the field to luther and let him have vernacular writing all to himself but on the other hand they weren't sure that this is an area in which they should follow him they were by no means certain that they should dignify the idea of theological discussion among lay people by following Luther into this conflict. So they were in a sort of double bind here, and they were slow to take it on. So although Luther had many capable opponents, um, their reluctance to engage him in the vernacular meant that Luther and his colleagues outpublished them in these early crucial years by, by a factor of about nine or ten to one. Well, of course, that's giving the evangelicals a tremendous advantage. I mean, they ruled the airwaves for these 10 years. Well, and that was pointed out by uh, Luther's own Catholic opponents when they came into the towns and could find nothing in the bookstalls but Luther. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, they, they blamed the printers. They said the printers are all closet evangelicals. 
Now, I don't think that's true at all. I mean, many of the people who um, printed for, for Luther had been happily printing for the Catholic Church two or three years before he came along, and um, they simply made a pragmatic business decision that Luther was better business. And, and you can see that in the fact that if you look at Luther's publications, they're very often reprinted six, seven, eight, ten, twelve times in the first couple of years, whereas his Catholic opponents struggled to get a single reprint. In other words, there was a first edition, which um, in the tradition of the book world at the time was often highly subsidized by either the, the author or a patron. And then it sold out or it didn't sell out and it wasn't reprinted at all. So these were really market forces which determined that Luther would be much published and more published than his opponents. It wasn't bias on the part of the publishers. They would gladly have published Catholic works had they been able to make money from them. Now, I want to ask you some uh, controverted questions about Luther, because you deal with them directly. And, and the first one is, did Luther actually nail the 95 Theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg? Well, I think, I think you have to go through this in stages. Uh, I think the 95 Theses were posted on the castle door. The castle door was the normal notice board of the university. That's where all routine academic business would have been posted, including invitations to a disputation, which is what Luther was issuing. Secondly, I think it's certain, or nearly certain, that what was posted was a printed broadsheet published by Johannes Rau Grunenberg, the only publisher in Wittenberg at the time. We know that, I think, because we found relatively recently uh, the only surviving copy of a dissertation text he, that Luther published six weeks before the 95 theses, his thesis on scholastic theology. And that suggests that this was routine and that it's not, therefore, particularly um, uh, unlikely that somebody, that uh, there was a lost now lost edition of the 95 Theses printed in Wittenberg. Did Luther put it up himself? I think that's a dramatic flourish. It's perfectly possible the uh, official of the university designated to do such work put it up on his behalf. So perhaps the dramatic stride through Wittenberg, which incidentally you can still do today, you can go from his home uh, through the town to the castle church. Perhaps that didn't happen. Uh, I was talking about this to a friend who, who also works on it, who, who agreed with me. It, it was almost certainly put up, probably glued up rather than nailed up on the castle church door. But he said to me, did you know... Uh, do you ever know a German professor who does their own paperwork? Um, and so maybe that's a persuasive argument that Luther didn't post it up himself, but it was certainly posted. Yeah. I, I also appreciated what I can only call kind of your, your text-critical uh, review of that, uh, of that history, of the document uh, that became printed as the 95 Theses. I, I also have to think that it's a lot less dramatic to speak of Luther or someone on his behalf gluing the uh, Theses to the castle <laughs> church door. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it doesn't. It doesn't have the resonance of the sort of the mighty hammer, which. That's uh, right. But you know, the, the 1517 only really became canonized 
as the beginning of the Reformation, 100 years later, when it was celebrated in 1617, uh, when Protestants needed uh, a rallying point just before the Thirty Years' War. In many respects, for me, the crucial event is the publication of the German Sermon Against Indulgences in March 1518. Um, but I think, you know, we've got the bunting bought and all the plans made, so I don't think we can change the date of the celebrations now. I think we're too far gone with it. Right. And uh, I, I have to say, I'm thankful that, uh, that, that you have written a book that's coming out in time for uh, what will certainly be many reconsiderations of Luther with that 500th anniversary. I, wa- I want to ask you another controverted question about Luther, because you also deal with this one. When do you believe Luther came to what can rightly be described as an understanding of justification by faith alone? I think it's very likely that uh, that occurred um, in around 1515. That is, he had a theological understanding of, of, that, uh, of that question uh, before the indulgence controversy. I don't think at the time he thought of that as particularly controversial. It had very you know, firm roots in Christian theology. And I don't think at that point his uh, critics thought of it as particularly controversial. For him, the big issue of the day was the curriculum at the University of Wittenberg and the influence of uh, scholastic theology, and that was likely to have been a far more bitter argument. I think justification by faith only becomes um, inflammatory, explosive, uh, in the particular context of an existential crisis of the Church. And it's only when Luther builds that into the sort of foundation stones of his new criticism of the church hierarchy and his new plan for a reformed church that it really becomes a hot a hot issue Another question that uh, has plagued me ever since Luther's has been such a, a focus of my uh my concern and uh, intense interest at every level. And, and it has to do with the fact that in my reading of Luther, the Reformer, uh, the greatest challenge in many ways that came to him came from Erasmus uh, in his mm-hmm. work on the freedom of the will. Yes. And, uh, and, and had Erasmus won that argument, at the, at the theological level, it's, it's hard to imagine the Reformation could have continued. Why did it take Luther so long to respond to Erasmus? He was so quick to respond to just about everyone else, but it, it, it seems to me that the Reformation was made vulnerable by his delay in responding to Erasmus. Well, these were very difficult years uh, for, for the Reformation. Um, 1525 was a, was a rough year, and to be fair to Luther, he recognized that if Erasmus was going to um, cut all their ties, he'd chosen the right issue on which to do that. He, he never doubted that, that Erasmus had gone to the core issue theologically that divided him and, the, and, his, uh, and his critics. Um, but 1525 was was simply a terrible year. He was um, really troubled by the peasants' revolt um, and the fact that the uh, peasants were using Luther's teaching as a justification for rebellion. 
And had Luther not been able to put him, distance between himself and the, 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 the rebels on that, that could have destroyed any chance that his movement would continue to enjoy any support from the German princes, and that would have been uh, a terrible crisis for them. He was also preparing to get married, um, and he re- recognized that the, the sight of, uh, of a former monk marrying a former nun was going to be a huge propaganda coup for his opponents who could claim that this is what the Reformation came down to, this this sordid sexual bargain between these two people. So he was under an enormous amount of pressure in these years. And there is a, there is a, in fact, a portrait of him pro- painted by Cranach in these years where he looks you know, devastated and washed out. Yes, indeed. Now, let me go forward in your book then. Uh, since you mentioned uh, Katie and, uh, and his marriage, you also point out that in his very happy and fulfilling family life, Luther and his extremely able partner, that is his wife, Katharina von Bora, uh, they really, in many ways, invented the Protestant family. Yes, I mean, the, the whole issue of, of, of the priesthood and family had been tr- very troubling in, in the medieval church, uh, and it was dealt with differently by different um, uh, parts of the, of the Western church. In England, for instance, uh, clerical celibacy was quite strictly enforced. In in other parts of, uh, of Europe, Switzerland, for instance, it was perfectly routine for priests to take what was in effect a common law wife in return for paying a small uh, wife tax. Um, but of course, that didn't give that wife any protection. She didn't inherit on her uh, on her husband's death. So it was a you know, very unsatisfactory situation. Now, by 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 marrying and encouraging all his followers to marry, um, Luther created this new family at the centre of the community, and it was extremely powerful. I think it also sensitized Luther to certain issues which became very important in the movement as a whole. Uh, one of them was female literacy. Um, until this point, um, reading had been almost entirely a male preserve. Um, only women in the very top echelons of society would have learned to read. But Luther, both theologically and I think emotionally through his experience as a father, uh, believed that it was absolutely vital that women had as much chance to take an informed view of their faith as men. So Lutheranism is accompanied by a vast growth in schooling, um, boys' schools, but also girls' schools. And this is the first step towards closing the literacy gap that was such a stark feature of of medieval and uh, and early modern society. Speaking of Luther and the book, I was very interested to see how personally involved Luther was in even the aesthetics of his books Mm. and uh, Mm. with the flugschrift and the the pamphleteering that went on. Uh, Luther understood that how the text would appear would have something to do with how credible it was understood to be. Yeah, I'm. Uh, that was one of the revelations for me when I, 
after I started researching the book. I mean, I hadn't expected to find such direct evidence, not least in his correspondence, of his passionate involvement in the day-to-day work of the printing press. Um, I think it would have been a real struggle for the printers in in, in Wittenberg when he marched into the print shop, which I'm sure he did on a virtually day-to-day basis, not least because it was very common for authors to check their own proofs. Uh, And since you get one sheet pulled off at a time, that meant you pretty much had to go back every day to check the new proofs. Well, Luther made his opinions extremely clear. He thought he always suspected the printers would cut corners, uh, save money, make more money for themselves. So he was very down on them. But when you think of it, should it be that surprising? Luther had a very unusual um, background for 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 a priest. He he was he was the son of an industrial entrepreneur. His father uh, was involved in the copper mining industry. He was brought up in therefore in an industrial household, one which was dominated by an extremely richy, risky business of investment, uh, raising capital, the risk that this seam of copper would run out, uh, very uncertain life. But, you know, having brought been brought up in a family which lived through metalwork, I think he had a natural affinity for the technology of print. And put that together with the design brilliance of Lucas Cranach, and I think you have a very potent combination. Several secular historians looking at Luther have argued that his most lasting achievement was the translation of the Bible into German, which uh, in many ways, such as the authorized version of the King James Version, and uh, combined with Shakespeare in English, helped to, uh, to situate the English language. He helped to, uh, to, to situate the German language in a way that's lasted for centuries. Is, uh, do you see that as one of Luther's greatest achievements? Well, I think it, it's, it's one of the greatest achievements of the team that Luther gathered around him. Um, it's only really the New Testament, which is a, a, a solitary achievement. And you could legitimately say that that laid down the guidelines in, 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 in terms of tone and uh, language and appeal. But once Luther returned from the Wartburg, the rest of the translation involved Bugenhagen, Agricola, right. particularly Philip Melanchthon, who he thought of as the great brain of the Reformation. It's rather charming, actually, that, you know, whereas we think of Luther as incomparable, he thought of young Philip Melanchthon as incomparably the better brain than he had himself. What do you think, on the other hand, was Luther's greatest uh, tragedy, his his greatest failure? His greatest failure? I would think that he felt his greatest failure was that the church ended divided. Um, I think Luther always thought of himself as a good Catholic. Um, he intended to reform the church, not divide it. And that the church was not only divided between Catholics and, as it turned out, Protestants, but that the reformers did not themselves remain united. I think that was a source of great grief to him. 
Um, everything from that respect started to go wrong in, in, in 1525 already with the Peasants' War. And perhaps here, Luther was guilty of his... Uh, Luther was the victim of his own rhetoric. Um, because if there's one phrase that he might want to wanted to recall, it was probably the priesthood of all believers. When Luther used that phrase, what he meant was that through justification by faith, that Christians had direct access to a relationship with God. In other words, that princely intercession was not necessary. But what he didn't mean was that the priesthood of all believers could be interpreted to mean that all Christians had equal power of interpretation of the Bible. But once he'd given the sort of theological opening for that, and he'd given a translation of the Bible, the Reformation, of course, was extremely vulnerable to the sense that we've abandoned the authority of the Pope. We haven't put ourselves under the authority of Luther. So why not interpret for ourselves what we believe the Bible means. So the fragmentation of the evangelical movement was really predestined from that moment. And I think he would think of that as his greatest failure. Now we're having this conversation with 2017 fast before us. And I think many people living today are going to ask a very basic question that applies directly to Luther, but by extension to virtually anyone who lived during his time. How do we evaluate Luther the man, the historical figure, the theologian, the churchman, the reformer, uh, in a way that's intellectually honest, given the distance, not only historically but morally, between 1517 and 2017? Yeah. Well, I I think that has two parts. Firstly, we evaluate people by their works, by their consequence, by their impact. And I think on all those levels, Luther is remarkable. Whether you regret what occurred or whether you stand in the tradition created by Luther, one has to acknowledge that here was a person who made an extraordinary impact on his society. And the division of Western Christendom that came about in the years after 1517 is still with us today. I think you should say that, and it's imp- but it's important also to, to realize that this is the past, that this happened a long time ago when mores were different, when life was very different, life was hard, people were surrounded by death. Um, we live in a society now which sort of has sort of half abolished risk, whereas Luther and his Contemporaries lived in a society full of risk, full of pain. Luther lived the last 15 to 20 years of his life in, in, in virtually constant pain, and this was not an unusual experience. So w- there's no point wagging our fingers at people in history and thinking they should have behaved like us. That's, that's the opposite of the historical process. History is about understanding the past, not about looking for ourselves in the past. 
Professor Pedigree, it has been uh, it's been a delight to have this conversation with you. And I have to tell you that I really enjoyed your previous work on the invention of news. And uh, I can see how your previous work and scholarship on the Reformation uh, combined with that uh, that incredible historical uh, understanding of the uh, of the invention of news and uh, in so many ways print media, how they came together in Brand Luther. And uh, I can only ask you, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I'm working, um, I have a, a group here who uh, work on the history of the book, and we have a database called the Universal Short Title Catalog, which is a, a searchable uh, free access database of all books published before 1600. And we're now in the process of extending it into the 17th century. And that will, when we've done that, that will be the best part of a million books with the best part of six million copies attached. So that's, 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 that, that keeps me busy. Um, maybe at some point in the future I'll write a sequel for the invention of news and take the story of news up into the present day. But at the moment I'm just enjoying, uh, enjoying talking about Brand Luther, looking forward to the anniversary and working away with my students. Professor Pedigree, thank you so much today for joining me for Thinking in Public. My pleasure. often tell students that my introduction to the controversies of church history came when, as a teenager, I first read A History of the Reformation. Then I bought a church history. I didn't know it had been written by a Catholic, but it referred to the Reformation instead as the Protestant Revolt. Where there you have it. Is it a Reformation or a Revolt? One of the most basic questions of church history. And yet, when we look at it, we really can't answer it at once, and we can't answer it at all without talking about Martin Luther, the central figure in the beginning of the Reformation. That's why this book by Andrew Pedigree is so important. Its title is Brand Luther. That's interesting in and of itself because one of the things that Professor Pedigree acknowledges is that by the time of his death, actually long before his death, as a major figure during the course of the Reformation, Luther had already become, in essence, what we moderns would call a brand. And thus, Martin Luther becomes something of a more modern person right before our eyes, standing out in contrast to virtually all Christian leaders who had preceded him, certainly in the medieval church. But of course, there's far more to Luther, and that's what I really appreciate about the approach taken by Professor Pedigree. 2017 looms right before us, and that means we're going to be looking at many reconsiderations of the Reformation, going back to the year 1517. As Professor Pedigree made clear, it was only in 1617 that Lutherans in Germany decided that that was the date from which they would start the Reformation's history. And of course, it came in itself in a context of politics and history that required a more clear Protestant identity. Well, if anything, in the year 2017, we face a similar kind of challenge with another necessity of defining a Protestant identity. That's why I'm so glad to have had this conversation with Professor Andrew Pedigree about his book, Brand Luther, because he offers insights and avenues into understanding Luther's life that we had not had before. That's what makes a book truly important, not just because it tells a story better than or as well as the story's been told before, but because it tells us more about the story than we knew before. And that's what makes the year 2017 so optimal for this kind of reconsideration, and that's what makes this book such an example of what we hope will come in the course of the celebration of the Reformation's beginning in the year 2017. 
But there's more to that, of course, and we're going to be looking at many conversations. My introduction to the controversies of church history came as a teenager when I read two different church histories, the first written by a Protestant, and of course it spoke gloriously about the Protestant Reformation, the second written by a Roman Catholic, and all of a sudden I was introduced to what it called the Protestant Revolt. Well, there you have to say the very least, a direct contradiction in interpretations. And by the time we come to the year 2017, Protestants and Catholics have 500 years of arguing about what the Reformation was all about. And when we look at the year 2017, we face an incredible opportunity to go back to 1517 in a way that previous generations really could not. In this sense, we should be very thankful for modern history, For modern historiography and modern historical writing, such as evidenced by Brand Luther. Because here we are taken back into original documents, even some text-critical considerations of Luther. Here we have access to information that even those in 1717, 1817, and 1917 didn't have. In its essence, history is not only a reconsideration and retracing of things past, it is a reconsideration of the meaning of these things for the present and also for the future. As a confessional Protestant, I am particularly thankful for the kind of scholarship that is evidenced in this book. And I'm also thankful for this conversation. It is, I believe, an example of a conversation that needs to go not only well into the year 2017, but well beyond. Many thanks again to my guest, Professor Andrew Pedigree, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.